Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson saying hello again from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia, where a week ago it was snowing, and right now it's 70 degrees, and we are celebrating the Virginia Festival of the Book with people from all over the country who are here, and some of these people may one day find themselves on the learning curve. But of course, no matter what day it is in Virginia or what day it is in Massachusetts, we cannot have a learning curve without the person who always hits the ball out of the park when a curve is coming. And that's character. Oh, that you thought about that one. You know what? I've never hit a ball out of the park in my life, Gerard. <laughs> sure. My eight-year-old can do it. Here you are celebrating, what did you say? The festival of the book? Something something yeah. erudite and lovely and wonderful. So we here in Boston, we continue to celebrate, of course, St. Patrick's Day which mm-hmm. I don't know, I have lived here, gosh, how long have I lived here now? Coming up on 17, 18 years, and I didn't even realize that it's actually a citywide holiday. I went to park my car downtown yesterday and the meters were, I thought, well, there you go. And the bars were packed at noon. I thought, well, this is my city. So you have your festival of the book and we'll be here drinking green beer. Although I'm not, I'm drinking lemon water, which is not very exciting, Gerard. But I got to keep my head on straight to hit it out of the park with you today, my friend. So <laughs> good to hear your voice. As always, listeners, we got a couple stories of the week coming at you. And mine is... It's like bittersweet because I'm glad that the education department is doing this, but I'm so sad and actually more than sad. It's angry that there's a reason for this. But this is from the NPR politics desk. I actually listened to it before I read it. And the title is, of course, Education Department Will Provide Grants for HBCUs Targeted by Bomb Threats. So for those of you who have been subsumed with just so much of the other news that is coming at us, constantly in a barrage. I keep waiting for the good news somewhere. It is, this has just been an ongoing thing for the past, happening in recent years, but especially in the past three months that 30 historically black colleges and universities across the country have been targeted with bomb threats. So I'm consistently amazed that this is still the society that we live in. But you know, these bomb threats were, last month was Black History Month, were particularly concentrated in Black History Month. And the quote from the education department is that these bomb threats against HBCUs, particularly concentrated in Black History Month, constitute a uniquely traumatic event given the history of bombings as a tactic to intimidate and provoke fear in black Americans during the long struggle for civil rights. So in a time when students everywhere are traumatized by more things than we can count, here you have students at HBCUs probably wondering day to day if it's actually going to happen. So Secretary Cardona is going to award some grant money to HBCUs, and these awards will range between fifty dollars and $150,000. They're from Project Serve, and that's a program that supports schools that have experienced violent or traumatic incidents. So it's not a ton of money, but it's something, and I think that it's, in my book, good that the Secretary is giving a nod to the fact that this is so many things, but one among them, trauma for students. The funds can be used to improve security or increase mental health resources. Gerard, I know that you are a graduate of an HBCU. We've had graduates of other HBCUs and professors from HBCUs on this program. They are such a vital and important part of the American university system. I think you'll probably know this statistic, but HBCUs graduate a large percentage 
of children of color, of black children who, black students, I should say, that attend college in this country. And so many of them go on to do such important and wonderful things like yourself. And this is just like I said, at the outset, it's bittersweet. I'm glad that the education department is in a small way, very small way, recognizing the trauma these students are experiencing. But I'm also just sick to death and tired that this is happening and that we continue to live in a country where this can happen to students, to faculty members. So anyway, give me some ray of hope, Gerard. What do you think? Well, thanks for sharing the story and bringing it up. I am a graduate of HBCU, Howard University in Washington, DC. And I've received a number of emails about this for months, in part because there are a group of HBCU leaders who are part of the HBCU Emergency Management and Wellness Consortium. And they've been meeting for over a year independent of this, but to talk about the importance of utilizing resources, both academic, human, and otherwise, who are on our campuses to provide support to the nation. In particular, there are a couple of scholars who are at Elizabeth City State University in North Carolina, where they actually offer training in emergency management. And so they've taken this as an opportunity to elevate the voice of the consortium and to say, we're here to help. Always good to see the U.S. Department of Education get involved. I'm also sure, even the article didn't say this, President Biden is a big supporter of HBCUs. When, of course, when he was Senator for Delaware, big supporter of Delaware State University. So I'm glad the secretary and leaders in Washington, D.C. are making investments. And I am also aware that the White House initiative on HBCUs, they have a new executive director, Dr. Trent, who is also an HBCU graduate, Hampton University. She's also the former Secretary of Education for Virginia, and she has a lot of experience in education. So she's going to be the new leader at the White House, and so I'm sure she's going to play an important role in this as well. And Kara, you're right. When you think about the fact that HBCUs make up 3% of the higher education institutions in the United States and produce roughly 24% of the engineers, almost an equal number of doctors, places like Morehouse College, number one producer of black men earning PhDs, places like Dillard, number one pipeline in terms of black schools, sending people to medical school and North Carolina A&T, not just HBCU, but one of the top 20 producers of black engineering students, black or white in the country. So while people are trying to bomb, we will always rise from the ashes. And we will even have a conversation about someone who actually was once bombed, Dr. Shuttlesworth, who will be celebrating a 100th anniversary today. But thank you for raising that story and shout out again to the HBCU consortium. Let's support them as well. Absolutely. So my story is a little different in the aspect that it is a good partnership example, I would say, between the private sector going to a state and saying, we want to work with you. So my article is from The Hill, and it's talking about Intel, which is Fortune 500 company headquartered in California. They have 79 billion in revenue, 121,000 employees. And as you know, Kara, businesses need talent. And so when they decide to look at a state, they're going to look at a few things, tax breaks, they're going to take a look at cost of living. They're going to also look at the people who are there. And so Intel had a number of places to go, and they decided they're going to go to Ohio to build two chip manufacturing companies with an investment of $20 billion. So that's a major investment. 
And so one of the reasons they said that Intel personnel said they chose the state is because of its great higher education system. As we know, many of our listeners, Ohio is one of the states that was created out of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. In that law, it actually has language to support schools and to really push it forward. Even before then, 1785 Northwest Ordinance also supported it. But Ohio has been a major leader in producing scholars and students focused on a number of things in education. But their higher education system, both public and private, is one reason that Intel decided to invest. But that's on the manufacturing side. And keep in mind, 7,000 construction jobs will be created because of this. You're also going to have 10,000 jobs created as derivatives from the work that's going to take place. But you're also going to have 3,000 jobs where the average salary is $135,000. So that's a major investment on the for-profit side of the fence. Well, let's look at the higher education side of the fence. Intel said we're also going to invest $100 million to support education programs in the state. And this was good news to Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, who had a chance to make an announcement at a community college. And so what they're going to do are three things. Number one, $50 million will go directly to higher education institutions. Second, 50 million will be distributed to educators and science programs nationwide to create a STEM curriculum. So teachers who are listening, this is something for you if you're outside of Ohio. And third, and get this, the National Science Foundation put in another $50 million to support research initiatives across the country. As the governor said, you can't have a strong Ohio without having a strong workforce. And you make this happen by using your two-year and four-year schools. But K-12's got a role in this as well. Teachers who work in career technical education, teachers who are teaching STEM, even instructors who are starting to implement engineering STEM or STEAM ideas in middle school, here's an opportunity for you in both places like Columbus, which is your capital, but also in the rural parts of the state, which we often overlook, particularly the southern part. Here's an opportunity for you to get a hold of some money and make some things happen. So here's recommendation number one. Every dean of a college of education, be it public or private, four-year, two-year, nonprofit or for-profit, you need to send an email to your president and ask her or him, or better yet, request that when money comes to the school, that you would like to use that money to endow a professorship at your school of education focused on STEM education. And I say this having worked with universities for decades, it is tough, particularly for public universities, to use public money to endow chairs. There are a lot of procurement laws, a lot of state statutes that shape it. But for this one, if you want to make sure you have the next generation of STEM workers, they're gonna have to come through our K-12 system and our higher education system. So use this money to endow one professorship at minimum, maybe two, and bring in great talent or even elevate the talent you have internally. Number two, if you're the president of a community college, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to partner with your local business work councils and say, listen, we have money coming in. Let's do either a financial match from the local sector or guarantee some of the graduates who are going to leave your community college either with a license, with a certificate, maybe an associate's degree. Let's start working out on guaranteeing jobs or at least internships during the summer 
or externships, which can last one semester or a year and make sure they're paid. Third, and this is to our friends who are in the classroom, I've said for years that one way that we can retain talent and attract talent, particularly in the hard to serve STEM areas, is to start thinking like colleges. Superintendents, you should also send a note and let your board know that when the money arrives at the local level, you want to endow chairs also focused on STEM. And in the summertime, allow that teacher, if he or she is interested, to work with Intel or to work with companies associated so she or he can actually earn additional money in the summer, the same salary that he or she would earn if they were a full-time employee, and then bring that knowledge back to the classroom. So I think this is just a wonderful example of the private sector working with the public sector, but making sure higher education isn't the only one getting money, but that it trickles down to community colleges, to K-12. But again, they're also looking for STEM curriculum work across the states. So Massachusetts, opportunity for you. Uh, yeah, Massachusetts, are you listening? We have a lot of great tech companies here, biotech, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we could do a better job in thinking about the connections between these things. Jared, I'd like to add one more recommendation to your list, if you don't mind, and that is superintendents work closely with guidance counselors, with teachers, with parents, et cetera, to help kids, especially those interested in STEM and other fields, understand what the career pathways are that are available to them. There should be a great awareness of this to kids as early as high school so that they can start to think about their future and what it might look like, whether they take the two-year, four-year path, whether they go into one of these great new pathways that might not even require a two-year or four-year college degree that Intel is offering. And I have to say, Gerard, I just love the idea, and this was President Biden actually talked about this partnership, right, about Intel going to Ohio in the State of the Union address, which I think he was quite proud of, as he should be. It's a really great opportunity when we think about states, and I love that education is at the fore, because what we're doing here is creating what they're doing here, I should say, you and I have nothing to do with this, creating an ecosystem right that brings all of these things together because in so many places especially as you mentioned rural places kids don't see in their local community a way to stay in the community sometimes a way to stay in the state and be able to do the things they want to do and give back and when industries make investments in communities like this it's hopefully a virtuous circle of creating a web of prosperity that, as you've pointed out, spans from the schools to colleges and universities to the workforce. And that investment goes right back into the next generation of kids. So I really think of this as it's not just about jobs. It's about a whole new ecosystem that's really hopefully going to make people healthy, happy and prosperous in the long run. So that's a great story, Gerard. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Okay. Our guest today might have a few things to say about both of the topics that we talked about. Coming up in just a bit, we are going to be speaking with Arthur Levine. Many of our guests will know him. He is the former president of Columbia Teachers College. I'm sure that this is going to be a fascinating conversation. We'll be back in just a minute.
Listeners, we are privileged to have with us today Dr. Arthur Levine. He is a distinguished scholar of higher education at New York University, President Emeritus of Teachers College, Columbia University, and President Emeritus of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. Many of you know him. Levine has written 13 books, including The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future, and published many articles and publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Political Chronicle of Higher Education, Ed Week, and Inside Higher Education. He has appeared on many media programs, including 60 Minutes, fan favorite here, The Today Show, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Open Mind, and Fox News. Levine has received a number of awards, including 26 honorary degrees in Carnegie, Fulbright, Guggenheim, and Rockefeller Foundation Fellowships. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Arthur Levine, we are privileged to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us on The Learning Curve. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you. Well, we want to dig right in to some of your latest work. So many of our listeners already know you as a leading voice in higher education, but you've recently co-authored another book called The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future. Higher education is something that we, Gerard and I always share stories of the week on this program, and we talk a lot about higher education and indeed what it's going through and how the future of higher education will look, especially for kids like mine and Gerard's. Can you talk to us a little bit about the main findings of your book and the recommendations within? America's going through a transition from a national analog industrial economy to a global digital knowledge economy. We've only experienced change of this rapidity, this magnitude, and this acceleration once before, which was the Industrial Revolution. And during that period, American higher education was transformed. And that's going to happen again because we're experiencing change at the degree we are. So there's all kinds of debate about what form that change will take. Will it be disruption? The whole higher education system will disappear. Will it be adaptation? Higher education can fix itself. So we decided to look and see what the story was. And we looked in three directions. One was backward, at past history. One was forward, looking at the dramatic demographic, economic, and technological changes occurring. And the third was sideways, looking at other industries that have been forced to change faster than we were. And those would be movies and music and newspapers. When we finished all that, we found there are going to be four major changes in higher education, none of its own making. The first is there's going to be a dramatic expansion of new providers and distributors of higher education content. That's going to create more competition for higher education. It's going to reduce cost, and it's going to increase student choice. The second thing we found was, you know, you have near universal access to digital technology. Students are going to ask from colleges and universities exactly what they're getting from Netflix and Amazon. In terms of research universities, the nation desperately needs scientists and research. So those tools survive, but also in smaller numbers. And finally, the rest of higher education will be disrupted, will be replaced with all the choice and the cornucopia of new providers. And that's most likely to happen or the institutions most at risk are community colleges and regional universities. Those are the general findings of our study. It's really helpful, Dr. Levine, to have that laid out so clearly because I think that 
what so often lay people hear is two things about higher education. And, and the first is that something's got to change because nobody's going to be able to afford it anymore. And the second is that when change occurs, it will just be disruption. And so to have you define what disruption really means in this context, I think is pretty useful, the kind of disruption. Can you help me understand that you mentioned the pandemic and you mentioned the pandemic and COVID relief funds in the context of helping to support some of these smaller, at least here where I sit, as you mentioned, in the Northeast, we've seen several closures in recent years of schools that couldn't afford to stay open due to declining enrollment, among other things. And that you mentioned that the pandemic will give some of those institutions a bump for a little while to keep them open. But can you talk a little bit more about the other fault lines that the pandemic has really revealed, not just about the cost of higher education, but also about the quality of an experience that students are actually getting when they pay, in many cases, tens of thousands of dollars a year for their college degree? The pandemic wasn't an interruption. What it really was was an accelerator of things that would have happened in higher education anyway, but over a longer period of time. And examples would be some closures, examples would be online learning, examples would be upskilling and reskilling, which were required by the changing markets, and also the competition and the rise of new providers. All of that happened because of the pandemic at the pace that it did, but it would have happened anyway. And there are certain events in our society that serve as accelerators. The 2008-2009 recession was an extraordinary accelerator. Millions of jobs disappeared. When they came back, of the millions that required a high school diploma or less, only 50,000 were restored. 90% of the new jobs that were created required some higher education. That was changing to would have happened anyway as we moved to a digital knowledge age, but it moved them faster. It got rid of the old jobs faster and created the new ones faster. The pandemic did the same thing to higher education in every other social institution in America. So I'd like to ask you about another institution that I think, well, <laughs> not a separate institution, but K-12 education, which I think many could argue has experienced some of the disruptions that you are describing in higher education. So for example, we've seen in the past couple of years, the pandemic, if, you, if I like the term accelerator, has accelerated, for example, parent demand for programs that allow for learning outside of the classroom, that allow for parents to have more choice in the kind of educational experience their children have, whether that's within the public system, outside of the public system, or some hybrid of public and private providers. Now, as we talk about higher education, one of the main reasons we this nation produces teachers <laughs> in colleges of education, one of which you used to lead. And we've been struggling for decades about what is actually the right way to prepare the future teachers of this country. Can you talk a bit about American teacher preparation programs, what they look like, your read on how they've been doing to prepare America's teachers, and maybe give us some insight into what you see coming for colleges of education. About a decade and a half ago, I did a study of America's education schools and on their teacher education programs. 
they weren't nearly as good as they needed to be. They were low in selectivity. Their standards for graduation weren't high enough. They were disconnected from the school. They were preparing students in fields we really didn't need. We didn't need elementary school teachers as much as we needed STEM teachers for secondary school. And they prepared lots of elementary school teachers. They had a curriculum that prepared students for the industrial age. And they also, are, I guess what stands out is that they're preparing people for a low-paid profession, certainly a low-status profession. And what the pandemic did was make all that worse. It encouraged retirements on the part of teachers who found the combination of in-school, out-of-school, online, offline, really difficult. Masks, no masks, all of that. And what it also did was make the teaching profession less appealing. Enrollments have been going down in schools for quite a while. Well, they crashed during the pandemic. So they were going to have to find ways to prepare teachers. I had to tell you about something that the president of MIT and I did while I was at Woodrow Wilson. We decided to create the education school of the future, which is to say this would be a school that wasn't time-based. Students progressed according to competencies, according to outcomes. They passed. If you could achieve all the outcomes the day you entered, you'd receive a diploma the day you entered. By the way, that wouldn't have been possible. We had to assess all that, and that took a while. However, the notion was, let's have a curriculum that starts where the student is. Let's have a student move along in this curriculum, and not at the same pace as everybody else. None of us learn in the same way as everybody else. None of us learn at the same pace as everybody else. There are things each of us know and don't know, things each of us do well and don't do well. But there are a program that picks up all of that. So when the student graduates, that student has the skills and knowledge, the competencies to be a teacher in a classroom. And everything about this was difficult. It was difficult figuring out, how do you create a timeless education school, which doesn't have semesters, and which students move according to mastery? How do you create a curriculum that's mastery-based? How do you make this affordable economically? How do you give students a skill to live in a world in which everything is changing quickly, profoundly? So we gave them an immersion in design thinking. So in essence, we gave them the skills to enter a classroom today, and we gave them the skills and knowledge to be able to move that classroom into the future as things around them changed. The name of that graduate school is the High Meadows Graduate School of Education, and it's located in Cambridge. Thank you, Dr. Levine. So I had a, the honor to attend two schools of education, one at Harvard and one at the University of Virginia. At some point in our formal reading package or through conversations, we would talk about books such as Ed School Follies, uh, Teacher Wars, and on the other side, books that uplifted the profession. And when I worked in public policy, at some point, we would have conversations about teacher preparation because all of us know how important it is to have the right teacher in the right place and time. From your experience, both professional and through the academic lens, what can we do to support the teaching profession in a way to help deliver the type of academic outcomes we want for students across the board? I want to tell you about a program we created at the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. We call it the Woodrow Wilson State Teaching Fellowship. And we went into states and we built a coalition, the governor, the chief state school officer, 
the state higher education executive officer, universities, legislators on both sides of the aisle, schools, unions, and funders. And what we did was we picked several universities in that state, and it ultimately was in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Georgia. And we picked five, six universities in the state. And what we would do is offer them money if they were willing to change their program to create the kind of program today's teachers truly need. And we offered them $500,000 for taking on that assignment. And when they successfully completed it, we gave them another $500,000. They had to agree to keep the curriculum after the funding ended. We did one other thing. We provided fellowships to students to attend those schools. And we wanted STEM teachers, top STEM teachers. And we got them. We got extraordinary people to go become STEM teachers in each state. And they performed well in their classrooms when they became teachers. They completed their programs. And they stayed longer than the average teacher. The bottom line here is that it's doable. What it is is an act of will. If states want to improve what they're doing in teacher education, they can. It doesn't come cheaply. The state of Indiana, after the program ended, funded the program to continue at those universities. And Woodrow Wilson happily said goodbye. They created, they built it, and they sustained it. And the universities we work with, they too sustained the program. Were they everything they could have been? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. But they were so much better than what we originally found at those universities. Let me just follow up with that wonderful example. You identify great teachers to work in STEM, and we know that's a hard to staff subfield with several subjects under it. How did you define the right type of student? Was it a combination of GPA, GRE, other scores? Was it the school, the attended undergraduate major? What criteria did you use to identify the right students for this program? That's a great question. We were inundated with applications to this program, which was really, really pleasing. So the first cut we took was they wrote an essay, they got a set of recommendations, and we looked at their grades and test scores. And then what we did was we took who remained and we interviewed them all. And what really mattered was there was certainly a threshold they had to cross in terms of academic quality. It was really motivation. One of the things that everybody knows is you can't get anybody to teach and stay in a rural school unless they've grown up in a rural area. It was those kinds of bodies, that kind of knowledge, that enabled us to pick the right people. We really wanted diversity. That was critical to us. Since we were preparing teachers for the high-need schools in each of those states, in the most understaffed subjects, STEM, we wanted to recruit a group of fellows who looked like the schools in which they'd be teaching. Absolutely. There's been a big push over the last 15 years in particular, but even longer, to diversify the teaching force because the student body they're working with across the border are also changing. So you've had a chance to lead one of the top education schools in the country. Teacher education is one part of it. Research is another. One of the digs that people make against education schools is that we don't have enough rigor in terms of academic research, the number of articles in peer-reviewed journals. I don't buy it because I know that, in fact, we do. But 
What did you do to recruit and retain some of the best and brightest scholars in the country who've dedicated their life to teaching the next generation of teachers? In terms of recruiting faculty, that hasn't been the difficulty. The research issue that you raised is a real one, but not for the reason that you raised it. When teacher education came to the American University, which was in the late 19th century and early 20th century, what it was made to do was to look like arts and sciences. It diminished the emphasis on practice. It diminished the emphasis on working with schools, and in fact took as its emphasis the research focus that arts and science colleges have. And what that did was twist what education schools were about. Those subjects that engaged in research rather than practice were the most important. What mattered truly was not connections with the schools, but connections to journals. We took, and teacher education became the bottom of the heap. What we ended up doing, in essence, was crowning research, crowning graduate education, and diminishing teacher education. Universities made teacher education schools do that, and they followed suit. There needs to be a commitment now to prepare teacher educators and teacher education schools that can work with their local school districts. What's also true is that too many universities have treated ed schools and teacher education as a cash cow. And I know of several instances in which ed schools were made to lower their admission standards to get their enrollments up. Understandable. Last question, and since you mentioned arts and science, I want to talk about American law and medical schools that enjoy stellar reputations within the higher education establishment and even in our wider society. Could you discuss how these professional schools achieve their high academic status? What are some key lessons from them that we can learn across the board as it relates to reforming ed schools, but also the whole idea of accreditation and what that means for quality? Yeah. In 1910, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching created something called, they did a study of medical schools in the United States, many of which were butcher shops. They were just horrible. And a man named Abraham Flexner visited every medical school in the United States and Canada and then wrote a report for the Carnegie Foundation. That report was widely disseminated. That report changed the nature of medical education in the United States. It pointed to two models in 1910. One with Johns Hopkins and the other was Harvard. It took the ingredients that were necessary to create a good teacher, a good doctor, and said those needed to be requirements in every school. And they got adopted. Now, how could that possibly have happened? And the answer is, the study was a setup. It was a prestigious foundation that had been asked by accreditors, states, and the American Medical Association to do a real study of what this was like and to release a report, which was then widely adopted by accreditors, states, and funders. That combination changed medical education in America. And it's what I talked about earlier. It's coalitions and resources then make it possible to change education. Any state can do it. I know, for example, Wyoming, which has only one teacher education program at one university, one ed school, 
is in the midst of doing many of the things we've talked about so far. It's an exciting experiment to watch. Well, I appreciate the lessons from history, the identification of particular universities and schools of education that have decided to become a pioneer. Thanks also for the entrepreneurial approach that you worked out with MIT. I want, in fact, I'm personally going to look into that more because I'm interested in the future of ed schools. If you wouldn't mind, left up to you, we'd love for you to read something from your latest book. I'm sure all of us would glean some good wisdom from it. Henry Adams sign of a family that produced two presidents, attended Harvard in the mid-19th century. He lamented the fact that he received an 18th century education that failed to prepare him for a world plunging into the 20th century. Adams went to college at a time in which the classical college was dying and the university was not yet born. The models that would guide the future had not yet been created. It was a time much like the present an age of continuity and experimentation. We know a transformation is to come. The present cannot be sustained. The transformation will require innovators to launch and pragmatic dreamers to bring fruition. Thank you, Dr. Levine, for the reading. And we look forward to conversations in the future with you about not only the future of higher education, but the future of ideas, institutions, and I really like what you said about coalitions. We cannot, as silos, try to figure all of this out. It's going to take a lot of helping hands coming together. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. So, Kara, my tweet of the week is from Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal. He's been a guest here on our show. And his tweet is from March 16th, 2022. And it says, wealthy New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy sends his own children to exclusive private schools, but wants to force low-income Black and Hispanic kids to attend some of the worst public schools in the state. Shame. As someone who has supported parental choice, both public and private, going all the way back to 1991, I have seen this level of hypocrisy across the board. So, Jason, thank you for keeping comments like this on the front burner. And guess what? It's just not Democrats doing it. It's Republicans as well. So, Jason, thank you for the tweet. It's also your local parents who send their kids to fancy private schools and then question why anybody else should have a choice. So it's it's systemic. Jason is amazing, Gerard, and we always thank him for his work. All right. Now, Gerard, I'm going to tell you who next week's guest is, but also coming up after this, we have a treat. We're going to spend a couple minutes with friend of the show, wonderful human being, Sapphira Shuttlesworth. And so I know that you've got a couple of questions with her, but listeners, before that, let me tell you that I hope you do join us again next week and every week. Next week on The Learning Curve, we are going to be speaking with John Lewis Gaddis. He is the Robert A. Lovett Professor of Military and Naval History at Yale University and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of George F. Kennan, An American Life. So Gerard, we are going to cut to one more treat of a conversation. I know you're looking forward to it as much as I am, but let me say goodbye to you now, my friend. Have a great week. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. 
Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Learning Curve. Today is March 18th, 2022. It's just not any day. In fact, it is the 100th anniversary of the birth of Reverend Shuttlesworth. Many of you know him as a civil rights icon, as an educator, and as someone who helped change the face of American politics and policy in many unique ways. And to talk about his life, talk about the role she played in helping do that, but also the work that she's doing right now to address a different type of trauma in the United States. I want to welcome Dr. Safira Shuttlesworth to the show. Well, hello, good afternoon, and thank you for having me on. And yes, as you said, today would have been the 100th birthday of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. And if our listeners aren't familiar with him, I invite you to Google him. He was an extraordinary American who had a heart for humankind, and he spent the balance of his life trying to leave the world better than he found it. I am sitting here today thinking back over our time together. Fred and I were friends for 20 years, and then we were married for the last five years of his life. And, oh, my gosh, what a ride that was. He was an extraordinary man who had some large ideas about what we could do as human beings and what kind of work we could do together and how we could heal this land together. And the word together itself was huge in his mind. Someone asked me just the other day, what was his purpose? What was his motivating factor? And I said, love. It was good old fashioned love. And he would tell you to love thy neighbor as you love yourself and do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. And as a young man, he said he recognized that there was work that he needed to be doing, that he was called to do a special kind of work. And the Lord prepared him for that work. And as you will see, if you look further into his life, you'll see where he was bombed and beaten and all of that. But at the end of the day, he was able to be around to see our first black president to be elected to the United States. And so he got a lot of his just desserts before he transitioned on over to heaven. Well, speaking of the bombing, Karen and I earlier during the show, her story of the week was about HBCUs that have had a number of bomb threats over the past several months, and the U.S. Department of Education is investing money to help address that. And I mentioned because I know of a story that you shared when we were on a panel together in Boston one time. I said, you know, Black people have been bombed a lot, yeah. uh, even just across the board. Would you mind sharing with our readers who are listening about the story of your husband, him being bombed and walking out and the words he shared after he had come up from it. It was his same favorite story to tell. But yes, basically Christmas night of 1957, I believe it was, he had preached. It was a Sunday. He had preached that day and he was lying in his bed, sitting, talking to one of his deacons. He was in the bed. The deacon was sitting and talking and a bomb went off. And he said he knew what it was. He knew it was meant for him. And as the dust settled, he found himself lying on the mattress in a hole in the floor. So he was on the ground. The mattress was on the ground. And so he said he emerged. He got up and shook the dynamite dust, blew the dynamite dust out of his nose. And he grabbed his coat, which was hanging on a wall now that it was leaning at a 45-degree angle. And so he got his coat and he put it on. 
he emerged from the back of the house. And by this time, a big group of people had gathered in the front of the house and was trying to get to their pastor. And of course, the police were there. The police were already there and they were holding the crowd back. And so when he emerged around from the back of the house, people were gasping and went and on. And he said he saw a big police officer standing there. He stood much taller than he did. And he said the police officer looked at him and he rubbed his eyes as if there was an apparition. And he said, as I took one step forward, he'd take two steps back. He said, so finally I stopped moving. He said, and I was standing there and he said, the police officer said to me, Reverend, he says, I know these people and I didn't think they'd go this far, but if you don't mind, I have some advice for you. And that is, if I were you, I'd get out of town as quickly as possible. And so Fred responded to him. He says, well, you're not me. And you go back and tell your clan brethren that if the Lord could save me from this right here, I am here for the duration and the war has just begun. <laughs> it was his favorite story to tell. Well, thank you for telling it to our listeners. Absolutely. We are dealing with a lot of trauma today in the United States. A lot of it driven by challenges associated with COVID. It's impacted students, teachers, families. It's impacted businesses. You as a leader, you as an educator yourself, you decided not just to talk about it, but to do something about it. So I'd love for you to share with us what's taking place with your new trauma program that you're affiliated with. I will do that. You know, it all started with, I had COVID, December of 2020. I was diagnosed with COVID along with five other family members, including my 95-year-old mother. And so, of course, you know, when you get that diagnosis, you just, I don't know, my mind just went into automatic, you fight, fight, we're fighting, we're fighting this. And so fight we did, and we all emerged, we lived, and that was the thrill of it all. But the young man who was responsible for us getting it, who was a friend of my sister's, he had gone over and they were playing cards, and so she and her husband got it and passed it off to the rest of us, and he was gone in like five days. And so in the midst of it, when you've been diagnosed and the person you got it from is dead, now that just exacerbates the fear and the stress associated with having the disease. And so then you just kick it into as high gear as possible. For us, we started doing all kinds of research and eating things like sea moss, stuff that I don't even know what it is, but <laughs> you know, we found out that those things, what you had to do is build your immune system. And so we worked hard to build that immune system and to keep each other going and motivate each other. I'd go over and stand at my mother's window, look through her bedroom window and talk to her through the window because I wanted to make sure that she was fighting also. And so in my downtime, I was thinking about, you know what, this is just too much to ask almost of people. And I want to do something. I'm going to make it out of this. And then the question becomes, how can I help others? What can I do? And I thought about the people in my profession and I said to somebody, you know, Second in line to the first responders, who I have the utmost respect for, are the educators. I said, you know, I don't know if anybody's thinking about the educators. School is hard. It was hard before the pandemic ever showed up. 
we had our struggles. And I used to say when I was leading schools, John Q. Public has no notion of what it is we deal with in a day's time. And so now add the stress of not knowing if you're going to be in school next week or not. You, Sunday night, we're going to get that phone call. We don't know what we're doing. I don't know if I'm supposed to report, if I've got little children, who's going to watch my child. All of the mounting stress. And then the children, I have a 12-year-old grandson, and you come home sometime and go, Graham, so-and-so wasn't wearing their mask today, and he was standing too close to me. Children are afraid. They don't even know how to tell you that they're afraid, and they have every right to be afraid. And fear and stress, if you carry it long enough, it becomes trauma. So I decided I need to find out who knows something about managing trauma. We need to help people with the trauma that has been exacerbated by this pandemic. So I went in search and I found something called brain stimulated wellness. And it is a protocol whereby we teach the brain to respond before the mind can react to stress. When the mind reacts to stress, we can get into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of places we didn't intend to be. And we've got enough evidence of that. But we can teach the brain, if we know the different parts of the brain and how they respond, we can teach the brain and give it a set of events to choose from, a set of techniques to choose from, so that we can take down the stress and the trauma. And so it is fascinating work. This program has been in existence for over 20 years, largely in Canada and a few other places around the world. And they've won all kinds of awards because not only only is it a program about trauma, but we're also looking at how to help communities heal economically because our economics have gotten all skewed throughout this pandemic also. But we can help businesses to lower their insurance costs. We can help schools to get some of the things that they've always needed and needed more of by having a second income in place. And we can talk all about that as anybody is interested. But here's what I want to close with. We have a program, a series of videos called Closing the Door to Suicide. I'm going to say that again. Closing the Door to Suicide. Because the trauma and stress by now has mounted in such ways that there are a lot of people who are considering, just because of what we've been through, they're considering making the pain stop. But that's not the best way. We want you to think about who you will harm if you take that route. So anybody who is hearing my voice and who knows somebody who needs to hear this, www.closingthedoortosuicide.com. To date, we've had over 283,000 people to log on and listen to the information that is there. You'll find videos that speak to teachers, and there's one that speaks to college students and one that speaks to first responders. And so you just click on whichever one resonates with you. And listen to that as many times as you feel like you need to listen to it so that you can breathe. To date, we have not had anybody out of 234,000 plus people to commit suicide. So basically what I'm here to do is to save lives. I'm working with a program that 
helps you to gain wellness while you're here and to save your life in the event that you were thinking about not being here. Well, Dr. Shellsworth, thank you so much, first of all, for your commitment to education across the board. Thank you for sharing the great work you're doing this program, but also thank you for keeping us alive, literally and figuratively, through your life, through your words, and through your action. At a point in American history where we don't see enough examples of this, you're a living example of it. So thank you for being a friend to the learning curve. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care.